Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 149 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to remind you about our upcoming course with Esther Lightcap Meek on Covenant Epistemology, which will be held from August 13th through 17th here in Birmingham, Alabama. You can find out more about this course by going to our website and under events, click on courses and the Trinity course will be right there. Our course weeks are not only filled with lectures by brilliant scholars, but class times are also surrounded by worship in the morning, midday, and evening. You'll sing dozens of psalms together with fellow students and teachers. You'll receive sharpening teaching, engage in seminar discussion, and share all of your meals together. We really look forward to seeing many of you there. And if you want a quick link to the course, I've put a link in the show notes for you. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lighthart is going to discuss the text for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost, or the fourth Sunday of the Trinity season. We really hope that you're sharpened by this discussion over these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes. And today we're discussing the readings for the uh, fourth Sunday after Pentecost, the fourth Sunday of the Trinity season. Uh, This is June 17th in 2018, and the readings for this Sunday are Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24, just the tail end of chapter 17, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 10, with the option of reading the entire chapter, verses 1 through 17, and then a portion of Mark 4, Mark 4, verses 26 to 34, and I think the one way to see the continuity between the different readings is to think about it as a collection of readings that have to do with, or that are parables, proverbs. Uh, the Hebrew term that's used in Ezekiel 17 is mashal, which means either proverb or parable, uh, or can even mean riddle. And I think that the, uh, these passages give us a chance to think about the purpose of parables in the Bible, how they're to be interpreted, and so on. It's clear, Ezekiel 17, we'll look at the details in a second, but it's clear that Ezekiel 17 is an allegorical parable. It describes an eagle, trees, a vine, another eagle, uh, plantings and uprootings. And these are all things that have to do with uh, the condition of Israel during the time of Ezekiel, uh, who's living as one of the early exiles that goes into Babylon prior to the fall of Jerusalem. But it's clear that it's an allegorical story, and uh, that's often it's often said that Jesus' parables are not allegories; that they have only a single point. That's a um, fairly recent uh, interpretive uh, assumption about Jesus' parables that they have one overall point. If you read uh, patristic interpretations of the parables, you often find that they're allegorizing. But that's that's consistent with the way Jesus himself interprets his parables. When we have uh, both a parable and Jesus giving an interpretation of the parable, then he gives a, an, an allegorical interpretation where specific things in the story in the parable correspond to specific things in reality. Um, so that's one thing we can draw from these, these passages uh, uh, concerning the nature of parables. They do have allegorical, uh, they take an allegorical form. The point of parables is Jesus uses them and also as Ezekiel uses them. 
uses this parable is not just to convey information, but it, they're supposed to do something to the, to the reader or the hearer of the parable. They have a pragmatic aim. Uh, it's supposed to have some kind of effect. There's a perlocution and not just a locution. Uh, there's not just a conveyance of information or a story that's given, but it's supposed to have a particular effect on the hearer and particularly to change the hearer's perception of reality. This, Jesus' parables are often of this sort where he tells stories about his enemies. He tells stories about the situation that he's in, the situation of his ministry, and it gives a fresh way of thinking about and looking at that uh, at his ministry and the, at the world around them. Um, Mark 4.12, which is in the surrounding context to the gospel reading for this coming Sunday, gives Jesus' rationale for speaking in parables, which he draws from Isaiah 6. Isaiah is sent out as a prophet to a, a people who have become deaf, dumb, blind because of their adherence to idols. They worship idols that have eyes but don't see, have ears but don't hear. And so they become like the things that they worship. And then Isaiah is sent out in order to, with the mission to uh, prophesy to that people, to a people who can't hear, uh, to enact uh, visual parables before a people that's blind. And Jesus describes his own parables as having that kind of purpose in that kind of setting. He's speaking parables in part to harden Israel in their blindness and to make them harden them in their sin. So the Ezekiel, the Old Testament passage and the gospel passage are both uh, parabolic and uh, both are uh, doing those kinds of things. They are allegorical stories that uh, aim to change the perception of those who hear and at least in the case of the gospels, gospel account are intended to, Jesus speaks in parables, to create an in-group and an out-group. Those who hear the explanation of the parable become the disciple, that's the group of disciples that gather around Jesus. They form an in-group or have, a, have uh, an insight into the, what Jesus is saying. Jesus tells the same parables to those who don't have that explanation, and that simply hardens them in their rebellion and sin. The Ezekiel 17 passage, the assigned passage is uh, the final three verses of Ezekiel 17, which is the conclusion to a, a, a longer parable that runs through the whole chapter. As I mentioned, Ezekiel is living in exile. He's living in Babylon, and he's been taken there prior to the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem happens in, roughly in the middle of Ezekiel's prophecy, uh, but he's already in Babylon when that happens. Uh, and so part of what he's doing is um, prophesying about what's happening in Jerusalem while he's outside. Uh, then, uh, Ezekiel begins with the famous uh, vision of the chariot of God coming. Uh, it's one of the, uh, one of the uh, part of the import of that is that the chariot of God, the glory of God is coming to Babylon to be with Ezekiel, to be with the exiles. It's no longer in the temple. And that's a judgment on the temple, but also an assurance to the exiles that the Lord is going to be with them. Thomas Renz, who is, uh, uh, teaches at Oak Hill uh, Theological College in London, he was gracious enough to uh, Skype in earlier this year and uh, teach our uh, Theopolis Fellows the book of Ezekiel in a couple of hours. Uh, he's written a book on the rhetorical structure of Ezekiel, and he sees the first half of, of Ezekiel as running through a series of four cycles, uh, and the cycles follow a, a similar kind of pattern, but he thinks that the rhetorical effect of these cycles is to bring the reader more fully, to engage the reader more, more fully uh, with the prophecies that are being made. Uh, each cycle 
intensifies the involvement of the reader or the hearer in the uh, in the prophecy. Uh, each of the sections that he sees in the first first half of Ezekiel begins with uh, a brief narrative and uh, a date. Uh, a couple of them have a visit from the elders of Israel. Uh, that's uh, that's an indicator of a new section. And when you look at those indicators, which don't occur elsewhere in the first half of the book, uh, you that falls out into four sections. You have chapters 1 through 7, you have chapters 8 through 13, chapters 14 through 19, and then chapters 20 through 24. Uh, and uh, through that, you have a progression, as I said, uh, intensifying the involvement of the reader in what's being said. The first uh, cycle, chapters 1 through 7, announce the end of Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 13, uh, Renz suggests, uh, address some of the objections or the, uh, the the doubts that people have about the announcement of the end. People raise objections. They say, no, this can't be the end of Jerusalem because God wouldn't abandon his people and Ezekiel's prophecy uh, refutes that. Uh, and then chapters 14 through 19, the third cycle, which is where chapter 17 falls, that is the uh, that's the a portion, the portion of the first half of the, the prophecy that's engaging the reader more fully. Partly engaging the reader simply by being a parable. Uh, a straightforward prophecy, Jerusalem is going to come to an end. You don't have to be very perceptive or very involved in hearing to know to get the point. But if you have an allegory, uh, and if you have a multi-layered allegory the way you have in chapter 17, then the reader or hearer actually has to pay attention to what's going on in the parable in order to catch the import of it. And if you have a reader or hearer who's already become weary of the prophet, doesn't want to hear anymore, then he just won't bother. So that's part of the hardening effect of the prophecy. Um, some people that just get weary of listening to the Lord's word and the prophet and they stop paying attention. The allegory in chapter 17 involves an eagle and a uh, cedar tree and a vine. Uh, the eagle takes away the topmost branches of a cedar tree and transplants them into a city of traders. That's a uh, an allegory of the uh, of Babylon uh, snatching off the topmost branches of the tree of Israel. The highest place branches are the king and his uh, court, and they're taken off to exile into a city of trader, traders, which is Babylon. Um, that image of exile, the eagle swooping in and taking a few branches from the top, uh, turns into a, uh, a uh, goes into a different mode. The, uh, the it's not a cedar tree that's planted in Babylon, but rather it's a a vine that's planted in Babylon, uh, and that vine is planted by a river and it's uh, well taken care of, and yet um, uh, it's uh, it ends up being pulled up. And the reason it's pulled up is because the vine, once planted in the city of traders, once, plant, once planted by the Euphrates River, that's what the, what the river is, uh, the, the tree begins to incline toward another, another eagle. There's another empire. What Ezekiel is describing is the, con, is the tension between uh, Babylon and Egypt. Uh, Babylon is the Lord's uh, assigned instrument of judgment against Jerusalem, but also the assigned protector of Jerusalem and of Judah. But many people in Judah, including uh, some of the leaders of Judah, are more inclined to go to uh, Egypt, and many of them end up heading to Egypt. Jeremiah, for example, ends up in Egypt because he's carried down there by people who are fleeing from the Babylonians. The Lord's message through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel is submit to Babylon, 
Babylon will take care of you. Babylon will plant you like a vine beside the waters. Uh, And as long as you don't incline toward another caretaker, toward another eagle, then you'll be fine. But that's what uh, that's what the prophecy says that they, uh, the the vine will incline to to another empire. They're inclined toward Egypt. Uh, the image of the of the eagle uh, is not just an image of an, of an empire. The Lord brought Israel on eagles' wings out of Egypt, and that is the that's the background of this image in Ezekiel 17. It's uh, it's inverted and reversed in a number of ways. It's not the Lord who's carrying. Uh, Israel up out of Egypt. It's uh, Babylon that's carrying Israel, and it's Babylon carrying Israel not from Egypt or a place of slavery, but from their own land and into the uh, into Babylon. And the imagery is reversed. Uh, um, Jerusalem and Judah have become the Egypt, and the Lord is sending the Babylonians to take uh, to rescue, in a sense, to rescue the exiles from uh, the place of slavery which is Judah and Jerusalem in this case, and taking them to a place of liberty and a place of place where they'll be cared for, which is Babylon. The very end of the passage, which is assigned for the reading, goes back to the... Uh, this is a, a further development of the initial parable, which is about the eagle and the cedar tree. The Lord promises that he's going to take a sprig from the top of the cedar tree, and he's going to plant it on a high and lofty mountain in Israel. The original parable is about an eagle snatching some branches from a cedar in Lebanon and taking it to Babylon. That's an image of exile. But the Lord is saying that he's going to take some of the branches of the, of the replanted cedar and going to take them back to the land, and he's going to plant them in the land. In other words, Israel is going to come back from exile. The Lord is going to replant them. Uh, but the Lord is going to, there's a kind of new, there's a break with the past. There's a new beginning. Uh, he's going to take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. Uh, this is, in a sense, not in continuity with the, um, it's with the, particularly with the house of Zedekiah, who's being addressed here, Zedekiah being the last king of Judah. It's not the family of Zedekiah that's going to be the hope for Israel, but it's rather going to be among the exiles. The exiles are the true Israel. They're the ones who are going to bear the hope for the future. Uh, as the as that uh, image goes on, the tree grows up into a great cedar, and the birds of the air nest and find shade in its branches. And that's the way the Lord is going to prove that he is the Lord, and the trees of the field will know that he is Yahweh. The Lord is not just going to replant Israel in the land, but he's going to cause Israel to grow and become kind of the imperial tree. That's the image of the tree as a place of safety for birds and animals. It's uh, used in uh, Daniel 4. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the tree. He's the imperial tree where all the birds of the air find nests and all the animals find shade. And Israel is going to be that new imperial tree after the exile. They're going to grow up and become a uh, great uh, cedar tree that will be a, a place of refuge for other nations. At the same time, the Lord threatens other trees or uh, another tree at the end of the chapter. The tree that he's going to replant in the land is going to be a green tree, even though it's now dry and dying, he's going to make it flourish in the land. And the tree that's now green is going to dry up and wither. So there's, again, this exchange between the exiles and those who remain behind. The exiles, again, bearing the hope for the future of Israel. And they're the ones that are going to be replanted, and they're going to uh, 
turn into that uh, that great imperial tree that will uh, be a, a refuge for other for other peoples. The image of that of the imperial tree, the tree that is the home for birds and animals, is picked up in the parable in uh, Mark four in our reading from the gospel. It's one of two parables that's in the uh, specific verses that are assigned for this Sunday. The first parable is a parable about the uh, kingdom as a seed. It's like a man who casts seed upon the soil. Uh, Jesus has just told a parable about the the, the uh, sower going out to sow and falls on different sorts of soil. But in this case, the emphasis is not on the kind of soil that it falls on, but rather on the secrecy of the growth of the kingdom. The kingdom is like a man planting seed. Uh, he plants the seed and then he goes to bed at night. He doesn't uh, make the, the seed grow. He takes care of it, he waters it, but the seed grows mysteriously by itself and then eventually produces a harvest. And the kingdom of God is like that, growing secretly and in hiding. People don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Uh, the kingdom is like Jesus himself, who is elusive and mysterious. The second parable is the parable of the mustard seed. Again, the kingdom of God is being compared to this. Uh, the mustard seed is the smallest seed, Jesus says, but when it has grown up, it becomes the largest of the garden plants, so that the birds of the air nest in its shade. Jesus' description of the kingdom is picking up on that imagery of the imperial tree from Ezekiel 17 and also from Daniel 4 and from other places in the Old Testament. Anytime you have a, a, a tree image, of course, you're back in a kind of Eden. So uh, Israel returning to the land as a replanted tree is a restoration of Eden in the land. The kingdom that becomes that's a seed that becomes a tree that becomes a, a, the largest tree in the garden, is an uh, image of restored Eden. The third passage for this uh, Sunday is 2 Corinthians 5. We're continuing in our uh, readings of 2 Corinthians. We had a couple of episodes where we looked at portions of chapter 4. Chapter 5 is a continuation of what Paul is talking about at the end of chapter 4. Chapter 4 ends with a, Paul talking about the encouraging the Corinthians, and particularly talking about the ministry of the apostles in Second uh, Corinthians, the the we, uh, as I pointed out in previous episodes, the we is the apostolic we. It's not the whole church we or the we of Jews, but it's the we of the apostles. It says we do not lose heart. Our outer man is decaying, but our inner man is being renewed. And Paul ends the chapter with this contrast between things that are seen, which are temporal, and things that are unseen, which are eternal. Uh, things that are decaying uh, and things that are yet to come. Overlaying that contrast is the contrast between the afflictions that he presently suffers, the light momentary afflictions that he presently suffers, and the eternal weight of glory that he's going to enjoy in the future. And that's that set of contrasts between what's happening presently and what will happen in the future, between what is visible now and what is not yet seen, what's temporal and what's eternal. That contrast continues into chapter 5, but in a different, we have a different set of images that are being used. And uh, chapter 5, the first 10 verses that are the specifically assigned verses for this, this week, describe that contrast in terms of two different kinds of buildings which modulate into two different kinds of clothing. Um, Paul describes his current state as being uh, a tent-like state. Uh, he is currently in an earthly tent, he knows that at some point his earthly tent will be torn down, that is, his body will die, 
But when that happens, he has confidence that he will have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Um, the contrast is between the current temporary and temporal state of our bodies and our existence uh, and the eternal state that we'll be in. Um, the, Paul's imagery is picking up on Old Testament patterns. Uh, the current state is the tabernacle, is like the tabernacle, a temporary state, a tent, uh, moving from place to place. Um, but there is a, uh, eventually we'll, we, won't, we won't be in a tent condition, we'll be in a temple condition. Uh, we'll be in a building not made with hands. As long as we're in the present tent, we groan to be clothed. We don't want to be naked. We don't want to be unclothed. We don't want, we want to be bodiless. But we do groan to be out of this tent-like condition so that we can take on our full glory of being temple-like. That's uh, one of the various places uh, where Paul describes this, the contrast between our current bodies and our future bodies. Paul describes that in various ways. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he contrasts a perishable to an imperishable body. The seed that's sown in dishonor is raised in glory. The body that's sown in weakness is raised in power. Uh, it's a natural body, but it will be a spiritual body. Those are some of the contrasts that he draws concerning the uh, condition of our bodies. And I think the the tent temple contrast is uh, a, a different way of describing the same reality. So if you want to want to contemplate what will it be like to live in a resurrected body? What will it be like to live in uh, with the eternal things that we don't yet see? Uh, it's like the difference between uh, the tabernacle and the temple. That's the, that's the contrast that Paul's drawing. And our eternal bodily state, our spiritual bodies will be continuous with our current bodies, just as the temple was a glorification but continuous with the tabernacle but it will be a glorification and something grander and more glorious and weightier than we currently have paul is using that imagery we're now in an earthly tent our bodies are sanctuaries now they're tent sanctuaries they will be building sanctuaries but as the chapter goes on he begins to shift the imagery from architectural imagery to sartorial imagery um, without without any warning really in verse 4 while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, in order that what is mortal might be swallowed up by life. So without really explaining what he's doing, he shifts from building imagery to clothing imagery. Um, Paul is fond of mixing metaphors without, without uh, observing the uh, strictures of, that uh, we, we observe in our, in our poetry and our writing. We're supposed to be consistent with our metaphors, but Paul isn't. But I think that there's a logic behind that shift. Uh, Meredith Klein pointed out many years ago in Images of the Spirit that the that uh, shift from building to clothing is part of the part of the imagery of, uh, or it's built into the Levitical system. Um, Exodus describes a an elaborate tent. Exodus also describes an elaborate uh, set of garments that the priest puts on. Uh, the pre that the priests wear, and those two those two constructions are parallel to one another. The priest, in other words, is kind of a a human tabernacle. the The Lord tabernacles in the tent, and there's a human version of that. The image of God, the priest, tabernacles in the garments, uh, the garments of glory and beauty that He's given. 
So there are these uh, already these in the in the Old Testament system. There are these parallels between the tent and the clothing. Uh, both of them images of the spirit. That the tent is a an architectural embodiment of the glory of God. The priest's clothing are, an, are a sartorial uh, embodiment or a sartorial symbol of the glory of God. Uh, and we have these parallels between building and person. Even though even though Paul mixes his metaphors, it's not. Um, it's not accidental, or he's not. Uh, there's a there's a an underlying logic. There's a symbolic logic to the way he uses this these different images. Part of what Paul is saying here is not just uh, encouraging the Corinthians to hope for a building that they'll get from God in the future, but he's also emphasizing the present enjoyment we have uh, of the Spirit, which is a pledge of that future body. Verse five says. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge or as a down payment, as an arabone. We receive the Spirit as a pledge of our future uh, glorification and clothing with a building from God. We're currently in the tent. The Spirit dwells in us as a pledge that we will eventually have a building like a temple-like body. Uh, we're currently in this this clothing, this temporal clothing, but the Spirit is given as a promise and as a pledge that we'll one day uh, be clothed with immortality and our mortal flesh will be swallowed up by life. So even though Paul's, I think, is talking about the contrast between the temporal earthly body and the future resurrection body, uh, there's not a total discontinuity between the two because we already have the Spirit. We don't yet have spiritual bodies, but we always already have the spirit, which is a pledge that we will one day have the spiritual body, that one day we'll put off this tent and we'll be glorified with a a temple-like body. If you include the rest of the chapter, verses 11 through through 17, that that portion with the reading, uh, it captures another part of what Paul is uh, aiming at here. Uh, He's he's writing these things to encourage the uh, Corinthians, but he's also writing these things as part of his defense of his apostleship. Uh, he goes on to talk about, uh, again, adopting the apostolic we. We're not commending ourselves, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. The love of God controls us, that is, the apostles. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Paul is proclaiming the gospel, and he's giving this assurance to the Corinthians uh, as part of his apostolic ministry and his suffering in the present in his tent-like condition, the suffering of these light mo- uh, momentary afflictions is uh, part of his apostolic ministry and the, uh, it's the, uh, the pathway toward the eternal glory that he'll eventually, uh, along with the rest of the church, will share. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm